we've gotten in the time machine. We're 20 years in the future. What's going on with opera? I feel like operas are either atmospheric Mm. or story-based. And so I would like to sort of see something that's intensely atmospheric also be crafted from, at least on one level, more of a point of view of story and character. And I mean, I'm really interested in breaking a form and telling stories in new ways. And So you see yourself contributing to this change? Yeah. Last season on Key Change, we introduced you to Opera for All Voices. Seven opera companies working together, resulting in four commissions, two workshops right around the corner. But what all is this? Is it just about music and words? No. We have to dig a little deeper. Opera for All Voices. What were we thinking? We were thinking grand. How many stories are there? Too many to count. Can you change the world through opera? Can we truly represent all voices in opera? All voices? That's a lot. How many more seats do we need to add to the table? We're going to need a bigger table. I'm Brandon Neal with the Santa Fe Opera. And I'm Andrea Fellows-Walters with the Santa Fe Opera. And this is Key Change, a podcast taking you inside Opera for All Voices. An initiative that began with commissioning and presenting new work, but has grown into something different. This season, we take a deeper dive and discuss the topics and questions that are shaping the future of opera in America. I had the opportunity to sit down between rehearsals for a libretto workshop with Stephanie Fleischman and David Hanlon, the creative team behind The Pigeon Keeper. For those of you listening closely, you're right. It was The Pigeon Fancier, but now it is The Pigeon Keeper. So, Andrea, we had a very New York experience. We did. We were in that awesome building. Yeah. What Broadway show was it inspired well, Remember off? Thea, who was one of the actresses in the libretto reading for Pigeon Keeper? Right. And we got into the space and she said, do you all know where we are? It was the place where Course Line was inspired by. Yes. What a New York moment. It was a New York moment for us. (laughs) And in the midst of that New York moment or like coming out of that New York moment, we had that wonderful conversation with Stephanie and David about the Pigeon Keeper in between those rehearsals. Yeah. What an incredible conversation it was to really dive into their idea of creating this world. Well, and that piece with our jury, that was like a slam dunk. I mean, I hate to say things like that. Ten tens across the board. That piece rose to the top from the very beginning. Yeah, it hit all the marks, the story, the complexity, the beauty, being able to be so relatable. And yet the otherworldliness of it, too. Oh, yeah. It felt operatic. And who would have imagined how potent and um, meaningful it was to take the time with the text. And that's kind of ironic because I take time with text all the time. But that libretto workshop was really extraordinary. Very interesting thing, too, to have a libretto workshop, a concept that is probably not known to our listeners, and it was not known to us on the front end either. Now, more on that libretto workshop. A libretto workshop is really an opportunity to go deeply into the words of the opera, which has become something that opera companies are doing more and more, spending time on the front end with the narrative to ensure that there is dramatic authenticity in the story. Great drama makes fantastic opera. I think our listeners are discovering a lot more about the whole creative process leading to Mm -hmm. the premiere of an opera. I mean, just the concept that that you workshop both the text and the music with the text. It's an intricate process, involved process with many voices. Yes. (laughs) Oh, back to the voices, I see. Uh, So we have this wonderful composer, David Hanlon, this incredible librettist, Stephanie Fleischman. What makes them who they are? Besides being wonderful, great people. (laughs) (laughs) It seems like it should be enough. These are two creative minds that have 
from a relatively young age, been struck by and taken with the art form of opera. Mm-hmm. And in very, I'd say, different kind of stew pots that it seems like, oh, well, that's what happens when you're around music. But in the case of, of Stephanie, she didn't have a lot of encouragement. She kind of was going against the grain. And David, it seems like he's like the Renaissance man. He could have gone in any direction. Exactly. It's incredible. Their ability to talk about opera and what music means to them is infectious. And I just remember during this conversation, there was a lot of laughs, a lot of smiling. Yes. And a lot of... uh, Quiet moments that were really powerful. Yeah. Which is true of the work, Pigeon Keeper as well. Right. I think also what struck me about Stephanie and David together is that there's a certainty about their artistic choices. Mm-hmm. and A secureness. Yes, maybe that's a better way to say it. They have very specific points of view, and they know what they want to say, and they are so excited to dig through how to say that in the best possible way. And invite people to assist them in that. They're not, like, protective about it. Yeah. What's the old saying? It takes a village? <laughs> <laughs> takes an opera company. <laughs> right. <laughs> Hello, David and Stephanie. Hello. Thanks for joining us here in New York for the libretto workshop of The Pigeon Keeper. We'll talk more about that in a bit. But first, could you just introduce yourselves to our listeners and maybe do it by talking a little bit about like the first time you really remember something about opera? Sure. I grew up around orchestra music. And strangely, I don't have a powerful memory of being in the presence of an opera as a child. My first really strong memory was seeing Ingmar Bergman's Magic Flute when I was young on the big screen. And then I think the first time I had a really powerful experience going to a rehearsal of Stravinsky's Um, Soldier's Soldier's Tale. Tale. I might have been in college. I might have been in high school. But I remember just being like my world changed when I was in the presence of that piece. And then finally, the first actual opera that I remember seeing, but I'm sure there were others before that, was um, Turandot, designed and I think directed by David Hockney in L.A. And that was just so beautiful. So your first experiences, it seems like all were visually arresting as well as... Yes, always for me. Okay, okay. good to know. Although the Soldier's Tale was just, we were in a rehearsal room with, oh, right. with the musicians and the speakers. But the captured actors. your imagination. Yeah. Okay, so... Yeah, so it's Bergman magic suit for me, too. Although, not when it was in theaters, but we did have a well-worn VHS tape. And that was, like, a very powerful experience for me. Like, Mozart was sort of my family's patron saint with mm. my Viennese grandparents. My daughter, when she was three, went through a huge magic flute phase. And Aww. so I showed it to her, and she loved it. And it's nice to see that it holds up, and you don't really need to tell anybody anything about it. It's just an open book. And then my first full opera experience, I want to say it was one of those sort of like my ears opened up and I never knew that such wonderful things were possible. Mm. But it was Mephistophele, a good opera, maybe not the greatest opera. But as a teenager, I didn't actually really get the pacing. Mm. I felt very far away. And I think I nodded off maybe a few Sometimes times. Sometimes good naps are taken during opera. That's true. Yeah. That's true. And of course, since then, like I came around to it and now, you know, I love like all of the conventions, you know, and mm. you give me a seven hour opera. The French, and, like, op- I'm very the French happy. conventions then? Or? Well, all of them, all of them. <laughs> the, um, it was, I don't know, it's just kind of actually, I, I kind of try to always think about that teenager sometimes, mm. like, you know, when I'm writing things to be like, okay, there's like somebody out there who's like game and like wants mm. to get it, but might be coming to it and just there's 
conventions that they're not going to be used to. And so it's very helpful to like think like, is this communicating like as directly as like I need to do it? I like having that voice in the back of my head. So for our listeners, we like to sometimes spend more time with something and you just introduced something, which is opera conventions. Would you all talk a little bit about what you consider to be conventions in opera? Sung text, some kind of story, some form of story. It doesn't have to be linear. Yeah, and that is okay to like to sort of, especially to like spend time on a moment. I think the sort of time when this sort of tried to crack open was when I was like, this doesn't have to get me there in a hurry. Because if you're used to say like, you know, a blockbuster film, mm-hmm. it's just like, go, 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 pop, 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 very pop, specific. You know? uh-huh. And of course, like, and opera is doing this actually magical thing, which in our fast paced society, we kind of need, which is to sort of like slow down, spend some time in this moment. I mean, at the same time, you know, Stephanie and I are always like looking for a dramatic momentum. So I wouldn't want to overplay that necessarily. But I think sort of taking the time to slow things down is a big part of operatic conventions. You just ticked all my boxes. (laughs) We did not plan that ahead of time. So what drives you, assuming that you're driven, to create opera? For me, music is weirdly in my blood. Mm. Or I was first a playwright who wrote a lot with music, with song. And the language was always musical. And I grew up around classical music. And so there was this sort of separation between a play and the classical music world. My dad ran the LA Philharmonic for 30 years. And before my dad died, I I said, well, dad, I really want to write opera. And he said, why would you want to do that? There's no money in it. That's what he said. And I was like, there's less money in theater. Mm. But it wasn't about money, obviously. It was about something that's actually impossible to describe. And I think he may have also been saying, why do you want to do that? Because the view from the world of the librettist as an artist is a little blurry. So I was always at the edge of opera, but I was most immersed in theater that had to do with music. I guess for me, it's just, you know, ever since I was like a little kid, I mean, very, very small, there are all sorts of stories, you know, making up these sung dramas in the kitchen Mm -hmm. and getting, you know, my dad to play a character and this and that. And so it was something that, you know, I was always doing. And I was actually doing a lot of piano playing and a lot of theater as a kid, but I wasn't necessarily like hip to opera. But even like, you know, the plays that I really loved the most when I was in the theater world were like the most musical ones Mm. and the more sort of music like involved, the better. So it just evolved from there. But in some ways, it's like, I feel like I kind of started on the contemporary side of sort of what was like possible in opera and then worked my way back to, you know, deep love of like, you know, the standard repertoire. And even now, I just think that like opera is like one of the most transporting art forms. Sometimes when you're just like in the middle of this like huge Wagner opera, it almost feels like you're on this like alien planet and like the rules of reality have been replaced by Wagner's rules of uh, sort of this sonic like wonder that is coming into your ear while at the same time, of course, it's also like transporting you to these hidden secret places Mm. like in yourself that are otherwise inaccessible. Yeah. And so I I think that's what keeps on driving Mm. me is this search for that transportation. dive right into the story of your opera. So uh, it's set on this imaginary Mediterranean island and we're not exactly sure where we are, but we know that we're there. We know that there are waves of refugees coming across the sea and there is a daughter and her father who is a fisherman and they've heard about these waves of refugees and they're just trying to steer clear of it. They don't want to get involved. They go fishing together. 
once a year on the anniversary of the mother's death. She died giving birth to a baby brother who also didn't survive. So the 12-year-old daughter, Orsia, and her father are kind of haunted by this loss. One day, they are both out in the sea fishing when they see um, a strange object and they make their way to it and then they find that it's a boy. And so they take the boy into their boat and they're going to have to figure out what are they going to do with this boy. And the arrival of this boy, who is almost like a fish that they find in the sea, triggers an opening up of their grappling with a loss and actually is a pivotal moment in the girl's life where she realizes she needs to take action and help this boy. And so it's also a story of community. How is this boy received within the community or or not? And it's also a story about family. Like, what is it to be a family? And when is a family sort of empty of its familiness? And how can it be full again? I hadn't thought about that it is actually a coming-of-age story as well. And yeah. we bandy about those types of phrases sometimes for convenience and lack of sometimes of a way to describe something. But I think that is actually a critical element in the story that is a coming-of-age story for her. Let's talk about your experience with Opera for All Voices, how you came to submit the work and that whole process. Yeah. We were trying to think about what would be a good story for our Opera for All Voices of course, something that would be, you know, for all audiences, family audiences, and something also that had to do with the world that we live in now mm. and the issues that we're thinking about now. And we both wanted to write about refugees. And I think initially we wanted to write specifically about Syrian refugees. Okay. And Stephanie was finding a lot of films and uh, young adult fiction about the refugee crisis. And there was this one magic moment. I love this because it's one of those inspiration comings from accident. Okay. She sent me a link to one of the books that she had found to see whether it was worth looking into further. But instead of being a link to like, say like a review of the book, it was to one of those New York Times sort of list of like, here's a bunch of like notable young adult children books. Mm. So I clicked on it and I saw this illustration of this fisherman who had hooked a magic fish. And I said, oh, oh my goodness, that's it, that's it, that's great. And then I looked down and it wasn't that book at all. <laughs> totally different book, nothing to do with refugees wow. whatsoever, but I was so taken with it. So I sent that idea, uh -huh. just like the just germ of an idea uh -huh. um, to Stephanie to be like, okay, this is a little different from what we were talking about, mm. but what if it was this? And she said, yeah, we want to look into that. And then Stephanie took it from there. But Hen, we also talked about the fact that we've both been writing operas about specific current events, shall we say, and that we wanted to address what was going on in the world, but we also wanted to kind of give it more reach and more resonance or more timelessness that we were consciously thinking about that. How do we make an opera that can speak to audiences 50 years from now? And the notion of a fable really resonated with us. So we were thinking in those terms from almost the beginning. to create a world that is transporting to a modern audience. So it's not that they're going to see their everyday lives on stage in this opera, but they're still, I hope, going to recognize themselves. Mm. And the quiet moments and the relationships. So. Yeah. I think there's also sort of a way, sometimes one of the reasons we were attracted to this sort of fable like structure was like the way that sometimes it's almost easier to talk about something that's right in front of us when mm. you sort of put it to the side and transform it. And I also feel there's a strong need right now to have these places, these other spaces mm -hmm. to be able to enter into and dream into because 
what's going on around us is so challenging. It's interesting the use of the word other because that's another another element that figures prominently in the storytelling is what does it mean to be other than? Yeah, and I think that Stephanie and I, I think we sort of feel like on both sides of that divide because like on one hand, we're Americans and on the other, you know, we're a place where a lot of refugees are trying to get to. Mm. But that actually includes our families. I mean, both was your father was... From he Germany? left Germany in yeah, 35 and, or 36. Yeah, and, yeah. My, and my grandparents left Austria in 38. So it gets back to sort of having refugees in my family's recent memory. And then at least in sort of the way that I was taught that part of the kind of the Jewish tradition about thinking about refugees, like when we have Passover Seder, one of our traditions is like, okay, well, who are the Hebrews now? Mm-hmm. And who are the Egyptians now? And it's always about, it's the imaginative exercise of like, remember that you were strangers in the land of Egypt, that even if you're relatively comfortable now, there was a time that you weren't. And to me, that's sort of a commandment, if you will, for empathy. Because of course, like in ancient times, my ancestors were in that position and fairly recent times, actually, Mm. they were in that position. And so in some ways, sort of like, to what degree are the characters in this opera also going to undergo that empathetic leap? And Mm -hmm. there's some characters for who it comes quite naturally. And they imagine not only sort of like, well, this is just a person who needs help and I should help them, but what were the circumstances that brought them there and how extreme that must have been? And like, what has this person lost? And what is it like for them now to be in a country where everything is strange and they can't even speak and they can't even communicate? And how do they find Mm. a way of communicating? Some characters in the opera Marcia, the daughter, is very willing to go there. And there are others who say, this is not my problem and this is not my concern. And I think that for those characters, it was also important to us that they were also part of our empathetic leaps, if you will. We didn't want to write to be, it's like, well, they were just bad people and they don't like empathy because they're bad. But we wanted to imagine what their reasons might be as well and to really invest ourselves. The empathy can't be in one direction, no matter what it is. The empathy can't just be for the daughter. The empathy Uh. can't just be for this one refugee, but not this other refugee. It has to be sort of like omnidirectional for that. We really also wanted to not have it just be about, oh, there's this boy who's disrupting their lives, but it's really about the people who's on the island. I think we're both thinking about like, however much we learn about him, like who is this boy and who is this other character um, on the island? who is also not from the island, who is very important to us, which is one of the reasons he's right now the title of the opera. <laughs> right now. Well, and the desire, too, amongst the various people living on this island to do something, but they can't. We're trying to tap into the range of responses. So mm-hmm. there's the really truthful inability to, because a life is too burdened to be able to create the space. And then there's also someone who might be able to, but just doesn't want to bother, which, I mean, that's our intention, Mm -hmm. at least with a school teacher. And what's been really amazing about Opera Full of Voices for us as a challenge or Mm -hmm. um, an assignment or task is the limitations of the form. You've anticipated my next question brilliantly, (laughs) by the way. (laughs) Yeah. So the fact that we're creating a whole world, an island, a village, and not just a village, but also the sky and the sea and the birds in the sky Mm -hmm. with four main characters and a chorus 
means that we have to think really iconically and we have to be really smart about how we do that. But it, it's really inspiring, actually. Mm. Yeah. And that so those up, limitations are really good for me, at least. Thank you. Yeah. And, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> and that then ends up becoming part of the magic of the piece. So, mm. you know, we're not like we have a bunch of birds on stage. We haven't actually gotten, you know, a flock of 40 trained birds. So instead, that's going to be a, a children's chorus. And we have this one role a tenor who plays three different roles. And there's a way in which, of course, part of that is just because this is a chamber opera and we're going to like make do with not necessarily a very large cast. But for us, the transformation of this singer becomes part of the magic of mm-hmm. the world and actually just contributes to this sort of fairy tale feeling that we're going for. So how do you describe a libretto workshop, Stephanie? Well, we go into it with a draft of a complete libretto, and it's as good as we can have gotten it up till that point. And for me, because my work is often really layered on many levels, different ideas, different strands of imagery, even things happening simultaneously. So this story actually is one of the most simple, like the nugget of the story is simple and clear, which actually gave me an incredible amount of freedom to focus on each dramatic beat and how how you can pull in that imagery and keep it still clear. And the thing is that because I'm thinking about the visual world, I'm thinking about the shifts. I don't hear music in my head when I write text for opera but I hear rhythms, I hear shapes mm-hmm. of words. Like I've been told in terms of my plays, they're hard to read. Mm. And people always do better with them when you get in a room with actors and read it. I made so many discoveries. Like, I mean, we've only had two days, okay. but from day one and then having the time to kind of process that, not only was there all this incredible feedback that was given because everybody is responding and listening, but there's also a kind of inner thing that's going on too. So I was making discoveries that we weren't talking about in the room, but I kind of shifted and torqued things. Your muse is activated or in play and invited to the table as well. So things are happening for you in real time too. And I'm also like pushing things back and forth with him. Like I'm saying, do you think if we do this, it would be stronger or that? And because David, he has such a dramatic sensibility and that's like a really core element of who he is as a composer. We really have a common language. And because he knows that I come from music, like we talk about both things where it's not like he has his territory and I have my territory. And it's really beautiful to like work with someone who you don't have to translate. It's like, well, you know, what I'm going to need for the music, you don't know this because you're just working on the words. Like Stephanie is just alive to like the musical possibilities as as anybody uh, could possibly be. And I feel like comfortable, like she say, oh, what if we sort of even started though with the opera and like, I don't know how you would do this, but what if it was like uh, this sort of sound? And like, I certainly don't think, oh my gosh, what are you, you're telling me like what to write? <laughs> but that's then really it's interesting to me. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I'm like, well, how would I do or that? And is that something? Uh-huh. Yeah. And so for me, like one of like the great joys of this is just that Stephanie is completely brilliant in her own right, but she's such an incredible collaborator mm. and thirsting for a collaboration. Like she wants to know when we'll have fact, like even if yeah. I'm hanging back, will like push me to be like, what do you think of this? What do you think like <laughs> that? And so like one of the joys of this has been fashioning it rather than just being like, okay, well, write a libretto and I'll talk to you in six months. And also something that you might not be aware of, but I wrote a draft and it was 30 pages. Okay. And then I gave it to David and he had so many insights into how to 
further develop the narrative and the dramatic beats. He was not talking about music. He was talking about story. So, of course, it's like wonderful for me to discover that form and those moments with her. And of course, like I'm certainly influenced just by like how the actors are mm. reading the words. I was talking about that with some of our compatriots last night. There's some composers I understand who like they don't want to hear anybody mm. else read it because it'll sully it their own intentions. Uh -huh. And I, I guess I don't feel that way, especially because by the time I start writing this, I'm not going to literally remember the way that anybody like did a line. Right. But the thing is actually, I always feel that that's how like one writes too. It's like on one hand, you need to go to this like deep, vulnerable, true like place in yourself in order to really inhabit these characters and get actually kind of schizophrenic and really mm -hmm. feel that you are each of these characters in the moment. At the same mm -hmm. time, like, you know, your instincts can be a gift and your instincts can be a trap. Right. And so I feel like mm. for me, I'm always wanting to toggle kind of back and forth between that. Because sometimes I've found things by just going and finding this like really deep thing in myself. And I know it, it's that, it has to be that. But other times, like I want to be surprised by as many things as possible. Because there must yeah. be as many blind readings as there are people. Certainly. <laughs> right. And one of the sort of the agonies of opera is that it's just opera is not as flexible as a play. I'm putting a very specific like, interpretation mm, on that. You point. can still do things within that interpretation. But like, you know, if I say like, this is a long note, it's going to be a long note. Indeed, as opposed yeah. to if you're doing Shakespeare, you can make any number of those mm. words long if you want to. And so it's, it's important for me to basically like get that right. Mm. So the singers will then have a good playground to play in. Yeah. And I would add opera is almost like a four dimensional medium. And it moves through time and space. So in order to understand that movement and how it breathes and the kinetic kind of architecture of it, getting the scaffold, mm. um, the foundation of it to breathe and move the way that it needs to in order to support this larger breathing and moving that David is going to bring to it is incredibly valuable. Yeah. And there's some things you just don't know until you hear them. Like there was a text that Stephanie added and she ran it by me before we had our last reading. And mm -hmm. I said, I don't know. I'm, I just don't really feel it in that place. And she says, I really think it's right. I think you just need to hear it. And so I said, yeah. And then when we got to that place, it was just like, I'm not sure if I can explain exactly why. I mean, if forced <laughs> to, I can, but this is absolutely right. And I don't even need a reason for it. It just feels right. And so like, we're absolutely keeping it. And that's the sort of thing that like, I might've gone back and forth with it if we were just talking about it on the page, but you hear it and you know. So it is a fable or allegory and it's a magical, whimsical world. There's a lot of hard truths in this world as well. Uh -huh. What is it that you want audiences to walk away with after the performance? I want them to be thinking about love and mm -hmm. generosity and the hardness of this world, the rocky soil that we kind of come from and how we need to overcome that and reach out to other people and not close ourselves off because we've experienced pain. Yeah, I think that one of the key things in the opera is that the way in which people close themselves off to love is not just like a disservice to the people outside your family who you think you might be protecting, but it's destructive to your family itself and it's personally destructive. And that openness, although painful, is necessary. Next time on Key Change, storytelling. Whose stories are we telling? Who's telling those stories and to whom are we telling them? Key Change is a production of the Santa Fe Opera in collaboration with Opera for All Voices. 
We are produced and edited by Andrea Clunder at the Creative Imposter Studios. Our hosts are me, Andrea Fellows-Walters, and Brandon Neal. Our audio engineer is Cabby at Cabby Sound Studios in Santa Fe. Music by Renee Orth with cover art by David Towsley. This podcast is made possible due to the generous funding from the Melville Hankins Family Foundation, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and an Opera America Innovation Grant supported by the Anne and Gordon Getty Foundation. To learn more about Opera for All Voices, visit us at santafeopera.org. Oh my God, can we... Can we please add the outtake of me asking her to do something a different way? And she goes, don't tell me what to do. I'm like, okay. <laughs> that is, that's funny. <laughs> don't tell me what to do. People like how they won't like me anymore. No, it, we, we all laughed. It was funny. 